Hey there, I'm Dan Jones, sometimes going by Danny these days. Welcome to the podcast. Here on this show, we have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. This week, I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Tom Rosby. Tom Rosby is a professor emeritus at the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island, and he's also one of the founders of the modern science of oceanography. He laid a lot of that foundation for what would become the science as we know it today. That's my area too. I'm an oceanographer, so I felt it was a special treat, a real treat to get to talk with him. So a few of you might be wondering, and yeah, as you'll hear about in the episode, Tom's father was Carl Gustav Rossby, the person who first identified Rossby waves, which are also sometimes called planetary waves. If you don't know, these are waves that sometimes occur in rotating fluids, such as the Earth's ocean and the atmosphere. Tom tells us about his childhood in Sweden and his reluctance to go to graduate school. He didn't want to at first. It wasn't the future that he saw for himself. So his career, his pathway into science is really interesting and really varied. We discussed his early career working at MIT in Woods Hole, where he pioneered the predecessors to the Argo float network, things that would eventually find their way into these oceanic robots that uh, take measurements of the ocean. By the way, we do throw a term around, we throw this initialism around the uh, ADCP, the Acoustic Doppler Current Profiler. That's a device that you often find on ships that you can use to measure the currents underneath that ship. It uses sound, uses sound, and the way that that sound scatters off of things that are suspended in the water to measure the currents, to get a sense of what the currents are like underneath that ship. I think we did explain it once in the interview, but it goes by quickly, and I thought Maybe that could be a little bit confusing. So we thought we should mention it up top here. We also talked about, there was an article in the New York Times in March of 2021, and it was about the suggested slowdown of the Gulf Stream. And there are scientists who think that the Gulf Stream is slowing down in response to climate change. They think that that has already been kind of measured or indicated. As you'll hear, uh, Tom is highly critical of that idea. He doesn't think that the Gulf Stream is slowing down. Of course, you know, he goes into more detail in the actual conversation. But where he's coming from is that if you look at the actual, the kind of measurements we have right now of just the Gulf Stream, the uh, measurement evidence for that slowdown just isn't really there. It's not really robustly statistically there. One of the things that this conversation really brings out is the idea that oceanography is just a, a very young field that's striking, if you think about it. Because Tom talks about working with Henry Stommel, who laid a lot of the groundwork for physical oceanography. I mean, Stommel is one of those names that you hear about when you take an introductory oceanography class. He developed some of the really fundamental theoretical models that we still use today when we think about the ocean. Tom's love of engineering really shines through in this conversation. He's used technology to obtain some of the measurements that have been really fundamental to the field. Okay, let's go ahead and get right into it without any more talking from me. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Let's get into this conversation with Professor Tom Rossby. Here we go. Well, let me just start by saying, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Professor Rossby. Do you want to be Tom or Professor Rossby? Do you have a preference? <laughs> no, just call me Tom. Oh, you're Tom. Okay, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Nice. I never hear the professor. Not around here. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tom, for um, being on the podcast. And again, we really appreciate you, you coming along and taking some time. So we normally have 
uh, it's normally kind of a couple hours, but we can be flexible on the time. You know, if you've got, uh, how long do you have? Do you have time constraints? Oh, I'm, I'm to- flexible. I, I have a couple of hours. Um, when we're done, I just need to go out and do some shopping. That's, I, okay. Today is the 25th of July, uh, June, and uh, <clears throat> it is also in, I'm half Swedish, as you may know. I grew up in mm. Sweden. Mm-hmm. And my sons are in Sweden. My grandkids are all in Sweden. And uh, today is Midsummer Eve in Sweden. So this is a big deal now. Uh, right. so ideally, I would be in Sweden. But uh, so this is when you raise the the my stone in Swedish, the maypole, you have it, which is all covered with, uh, dressed in uh, twigs of birch leaves and flowers, metal flowers. Mm. And then you put on your folk costumes if you have that. This is an old tradition. And you dance around the maypole and sing the songs. And and then oh, you wow. eat lots that of good stuff fun. and get drunk. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. So I'm having, uh, together with a Swedish woman that I know here, uh, she's an interior decorator. Uh, she and I are going to throw a, a midsummer party this evening for uh, our neighbors. And, uh, oh, so, very nice. Anyway. Yeah. You got to prepare for that. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, I was just yeah. remembering we did some kind of maypole celebration in my elementary school growing up a very long time ago, but it was, uh, I don't know if it's connected to that particular maypole tradition or, or not. It was just, I seem to recall ribbons and everyone running around the maypole and the ribbons getting wrapped up around the oh, pole. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, know. that's else we did that even when we were in kindergarten as kids uh, we mm. had the maypole and we had these ribbons coming down and we ran around yeah that's I, an I old english origin. tradition as well isn't it that like may be an english the, one yeah the the morris dancers yeah <laughs> the stick oh, bashing yeah. <laughs> uh, i did a little mm. bit of morris dancing but uh, i didn't particularly like him yeah so okay, anyway okay. <clears throat> yeah i've got a friend who who is big into that she does that all over the uk um yeah. yeah so it's uh i don't know that much about it either really um yeah so why don't we talk about sweden a little bit i'm kind of curious as to what that was like so you uh, i read you were born in boston but then your family moved over to sweden because your dad's from yeah. there yeah yeah well my dad was from sweden as you may know uh, he's mm-hmm. he's the he's the guy behind the rossby wave and so forth um mm. but and but after and he married my mother in oh, 1929, and, and they had a boy, my brother, six years older than I am. <clears throat> so in the 30s, they were in Sweden quite a few summers. And let me believe many, many years later, these are the questions you wish you had asked your parents while they were still around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a message for you. But what's your name, by the way? Ellen? Yeah, Ella. Ella. Yeah. With an A, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, try to remember to ask your parents questions before they're still around. Uh, mm. uh, it's an easy thing to forget. Anyway, uh, I think they had plans to move to Sweden already before the war, but he was having a pretty successful career here, and things were pretty unsettled uh, in the 30s. And mm. so they stayed here. They had me in 1937. So 10 years later in 47, uh, uh, my parents finally did move to Sweden. By then, my older brother was too old, so he stayed behind. Mm. But uh, my sister and I, she was three years younger. Uh, we uh, grew up in Sweden. So I did grade school, high school, 
and the Technical University in Stockholm. Uh, hmm. And then um, at the age of 25, uh, when I was finished, I came back, you might say, or I came to the United States because um, I hadn't been here really. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really wanted to work. I had gone to engineering school. I was really sick and tired of sitting on the school bench solving problems all the time. <laughs> Uh, but my sure. mother and her friends persuaded me to go to graduate school to buy yeah. time and see what it was like to be an American yeah. rather than sign on the dotted line at Westinghouse and be an engineer. Um, so I went to MIT and I, yeah, I got a PhD in oceanography. Why don't we dig it? I'm curious. Can we dig into that a little bit more? So you were, you were around 10 when you moved from the States to, to Sweden? Yes, yeah? yes. Yeah. I didn't know a word of Swedish then, of course, but uh, mm. as a child, you learn pretty quickly. And, um, yeah. So I did, yeah. What, what was that adjustment process like? So you had to learn the language pretty quickly. Do you, do you remember much of the transition or, you know, where, where oh, yes. you, I guess? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, and I and I was and I liked photography as a child and as a teenager, so I I have pretty good photo albums of those days, and uh, um, that that helps keep memory fresh a little bit. <clears throat> yeah, but yeah, it took me longer to learn Swedish than it did my sister. Uh, she was seven at the time, and she was fortunate to have a neighbor girl her age. So they quickly got playing with dolls, and uh, I became extremely jealous of my sister because within a few short weeks, she was already yakking in Swedish with her <laughs> uh, neighbor friend. Yeah, uh, immersion, they call it. <laughs> <laughs> she was immersed. My, hear my hearing probably set me back a little bit. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, I, within, I don't remember exactly when I considered myself fluent, but uh, certainly by the next spring, uh, this was November, we moved. By the next spring, I was certainly doing wow. okay. Still quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, your, your, your world is kind of uh, kind of focused to your immediate friends and your immediate activities. And I mean, the very first classes in Sweden in January, I, at that point, I was still pretty limited. But uh, there were two things I could do. I could read maps, so I was good in geography. And, uh, and uh, woodworking was an important part of it school and of course gym and gymnastics uh, athletics so woodworking and and uh, reading maps <laughs> is what mm. we could do to begin with nice. and uh, so th and that has stuck with me i mean a lot of people like to look at maps and they still do you know i've got mm. one right here <laughs> <laughs> check out rhode island yeah <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah so so and then and then uh, things rolled along uh my father was extremely active uh, in his world, so he traveled back and forth to the United States all the time. So they decided, uh, uh, there are a lot of details that we don't have to go into, but uh, they put me in, in a boarding school. So almost all of my teenage years, from 14 to 20, almost 20, uh, I was at a boarding school in Sweden. So that was total immersion in Swedish. Oh, yeah. And, I was really only a visitor at home because in the summertime I go out to camps and do other activities. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm strictly bilingual today. I, I mean, I go, I listen to Swedish newscasts every evening. I read the Swedish newspapers every day. I read Swedish books. Uh, hmm. 
I, I have a Swedish uh, friend we meet every few weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. So no, I'm, I'm in Swedish. I'm, I'm better in English, of course, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, but uh, I'm I'm strictly fluent, and I can I can pass for a yeah, Swede yeah. on the streets in Stockholm. I'm always impressed by people who can speak more than one language. Uh, it's just it doesn't seem to be a, a talent that I have. It seems like magic to me to be able to just. You know, fully wrap your, your, you know. That's because you live on an island. If you lived uh, across <laughs> the English Channel in Holland or Belgium or Germany or, or Sweden, mm-hmm. for that matter, uh, you would immediately be at least bilingual. <laughs> yeah, I my mean, cousins the, are bilingual. The, the, I'm Dutch, very jealous. the Dutch, the Swedes, the, the Dutch and the Scandinavians uh, speak English almost like natives. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. What's interesting is like, so I've met a few younger people from Sweden in recent years. And uh, the ones that I've happened to encounter, they they speak English really well, but they also speak English with like an American accent. Like a lot of them sound like (laughs) they grew up in the States almost. Um, And I I kind of asked about that. And um, they mentioned that they're watching a lot of TV and stuff, you know, with American English. So that's the kind of accent that they end up picking up that's kind of how they're they're learning yeah i suspect that's uh the case uh in school i think the inst- well at least in my day the instruction very much was in english not american mm-hmm. um and when i grew up we didn't have television in sweden we just only watched the movies yes but even then uh there were a lot of british movies that i absolutely loved uh, you know alec isn't alec guinness was one of my you know favorites the man in the white suit, you don't know that, you're too young, but uh, <clears throat> um, uh, The Lavender Hill Mob was another film he made. Uh, mm. uh, I've heard anyway. the names, yeah. I, I don't know the films personally, but I've heard the names anyway. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's a, uh, but I'm behind on a lot of movies. It's not just old movies, it's also new movies that I haven't seen. <laughs> I'm, I'm way yeah. behind on a lot of that stuff. So yeah. what was the, so you said at some point, your family moved back to the states, or your you moved back to the states. I, I did. My, no, did. my father died. My father died just a couple of months after I got out of high school, oh, and right. uh, <clears throat> and uh, but we had already agreed that I would go to the technical university, what's called the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. It's kind of the MIT of Sweden, hmm. and um, get a degree in what's called technical physics, which was. Uh, the most difficult division to get into, but it had the advantage that it gave you an excellent education, uh, but not a profession. Uh, almost all the other divisions at the technical university, whether it's architecture, electronics, mining, or shipbuilding, or aircraft building, they gave you uh, the entrance to a profession. Right, uh, right. In technical physics, we studied the whole range of physics, mathematics, mechanics and so forth. Uh, so we got a very rounded and pretty deep education, but no profession. Right, right. Yeah, that sounds like the physics degree these days, that's kind of what it does for you as well. You get a very broad background, but not necessarily a specific kind of job you would go into afterwards. Yeah, so electronics was kind of what I liked. Uh, mm. Of course, I knew a lot about meteorology by osmosis. Uh, I had been in summer camps in Sweden studying cloud physics and so mm. forth. I wasn't interested in meteorology I, 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 um, as a career, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, well, that's, in that fact, I didn't even really, 
the yeah, old man's thing. Like, ah, that's that's dad's thing. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do something yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I liked electronics, and and I wanted to work. I wanted to go out in industry. I had no academic uh, ambitions whatsoever. Actually, none whatsoever. But uh, my dad had died. My mother eventually moved back to the states because she was American, and she, her sister was here, and uh, they were quite close. So as I was approaching the end of my engineering studies, she was starting to put pressure on me to come to the States because I was, after all, an American citizen. Uh, I didn't have any Swedish documentation whatsoever. Mm. Uh, and, um, and, and there were some other friends who also put pressure on me, including my sister and her husband. So, and then I, during that last year, I, I developed a friendship with this young Swedish woman. And she liked the idea, idea too, of, of me coming to the states because she didn't. She was a uh, she was a child of a diplomatic family and and had not lived in Sweden. And even though she was Swedish, she didn't like Sweden. Um, so she was game to come to the states. Um, assuming we got married, which we did. So I I uh, didn't really want to go to graduate school, but uh, I took the pressure and uh, applied to MIT. Got in uh, and. Uh, did a PhD nominally in oceanography. That was the title, but I didn't learn any oceanography. I was uh, very quickly suggested to, uh, I mean, I was an engineer at that point. Uh, right. And so they thought maybe I could be a good candidate for some uh, laboratory studies. Do you mind if I ask who was around at the time when you were at MIT doing your, your PhD? Uh, well, my immediate advisor was actually an Englishman, Raymond Hyde. Uh, he was on the faculty at MIT, but his wife didn't like the States, so he eventually moved back, and he was he was on the staff at the um, in Reading at the at the you know, meteorological headquarters. I forget what it's mm-hmm. called now. In in uh, he had a long career uh, afterwards in uh, England, Raymond Hyde. But my de facto advisor, uh, someone who actually knew what I was doing, because Raymond Hyde was more of a geophysicist, was George Veronis. Uh, He was quite well known. Uh, He passed away recently, a couple of years ago. But he had studied thermal convection, and he was the guy, I think, who pushed me in that direction, behind the scenes, so to say. I mean, I I was just a little kid, but the faculty were deciding (laughs) for me. I didn't really know but uh, I was game, and uh, so I studied what's called Bernard, conve- or Bernard convection uh, with the added element of rotating the tank uh, at various rotation rates, uh, uh, what non-dimensionally is known as the uh, Taylor number. Right. And, so this uh, was in the, in the lab. You were doing rotating tank experiments yeah, yeah, in, yeah, in the lab, yeah. yeah. Right, with three different fluids, uh, uh, sil- thick silicon oil, uh, water, and... Uh, Mercury. Oh, really? and, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. You had a rotating I, tank I, of mercury. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty crazy. I'm not sure the authorities would have let me do it. Uh, they would be <laughs> no. shocked. Dicing with today. death. I did yeah, actually. Yeah. We, uh, but anyway, uh, but it's, it turned into a really nice paper. Uh, and I, I looked at it recently, and I'm a little bit shocked that I actually wrote it. Uh, I don't see how I possibly could have, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who who wrote this thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I I was cut out for it. I mean, I had a good engineering degree, I, so I was familiar with mechanics. I knew electronics. Uh, 
uh, I didn't understand the science particularly well, but I, I but I knew what was, of course, you needed. To, yeah, yeah, you know how to conduct the research. You knew who, you knew how to do the things that you need to do to get the yeah. results. Yeah. To yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So that's published in JFM uh, yeah, a long, long, long time ago. And, <laughs> Yeah, I got to go look but at the mercury I, I part. I'm curious about the. I'm curious another, to, about how mercury is different <laughs> under rotation. Let's go look that up. Yeah, and well, it behaves very, very differently, and yeah. uh, some interesting phenomena did emerge uh, in the study. Uh, it, uh, <clears throat> it turned out that it could come back below the critical Rayleigh number uh, yeah. uh, for a given rotation rate. Uh, when it's if you're not rotating, the the classic. Uh, uh, critical Rayleigh number still applies, but if you start rotating it, uh, that's supposed to suppress the convection, so you have to heat it harder yeah, for the convection yeah. to start under rotation. But with mercury, there was actually, and, and that's a known curve that's been developed, that, that critical Rayleigh number is a function of mm -hmm. the Taylor number. But with mercury, you could actually start convecting before you, you reach that critical Rayleigh huh. number. It, it, it wasn't easily. Yeah, for some reason, uh, wow. and and I'm not a theoretician, so I, I I couldn't I could only speculate on the reasons. Uh, huh. uh, it was fun. Yeah, but then oh, why? And I should. There's another important name I should mention uh, because that first year at MIT in the fall, uh, I didn't want to be there. We I was still only engaged. We got married at Christmas time. Uh, I took a math course and I hated this stuff. I didn't understand anything. Um, so I don't want to say that I was ready to give up ship because I already knew what my research was going to be. Hmm. But it was after Christmas that I took a course with Henry Stommel. You've heard that name. Oh, yeah. um, he was uh, still at Harvard at the time. And uh, in terms of formal instruction, it was not a very good course. He was not known for being a good teacher. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, but he was a very inspiring person to be with. And mm -hmm. so uh, he just talked about some of the papers that he had recently written. And um, that that turned me on. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that got me. For the first time I was doing, I was taking a course that I, in some sense, enjoyed. And... Uh, it probably, it probably even less the actual material and more the fact that uh, he was such a fun person to listen to and uh, uh, be part of. So one <clears throat> one paper that he had recently written uh, called On the Narrowness of the Sinking Regions of the Oceans. Uh, and it was a very, very simple pipe model. Uh, basically, he was trying to uh, understand why it is that we have sinking in the ocean only in such restricted regions, you know, coming out of the Nordic Sea and in the Weddell Sea in the south. And everywhere else, the water is, one way or another, slowly going back upwards. Right. Why is it, why is it so asymmetric? And so he constructed a very simple pipe model, there's something like 25 pipes, all going down into a big reservoir that's well mixed. But at the top, all the pipes are connected with a single pipe. <clears throat> they all go into a single pipe at the top. And each pipe has a, at the top has a slightly different temperature going from hot to cold. And it was a very simple analytical model. Mm -hmm. uh, 
not terribly realistic, but uh, nonetheless, right. it got the idea. Yeah. And was, the water was sinking in one pipe. and was going up in all the other pipes. <laughs> so he, he, got the, he got the asymmetry right away. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't explain why. The paper's in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy, and, and there's no insight in the paper. Just, he just gives the results, but he doesn't interpret the results. But he pulled a fast one on me. Uh, he knew I was going to be in Woods Hole that summer in 1963 because I was newly married. My mother was still in Woods Hole before she moved to Hawaii. Hmm. And I wanted my wife to have a chance to get to know my mother. So I asked if I could take a leave of absence from MIT and work in Alan Fowler's lab uh, in Woods Hole that summer. But Hank intervened. And before I got a chance to work with Alan Fowler, Hank invited me up to his uh, office uh, in the Bigelow building, the top floor in the Bigelow building, the oldest building in Woods Hole at the Oceanographic. And he showed me a little tank that he had built where he had a water in it and he had an aluminum bar along the bottom and the bar was heated at one end and cooled at the other end. So it was kind of like an upside down ocean. And uh, he had taken one of these big laboratory thermometers uh, and sort of jammed it into the water and trying to figure out what the temperature was inside the tank. Really crude mm -hmm. stuff. But he was he he was setting me up. I mean, he he said, "This is what I'm trying to do, Tom. Uh, do you have any suggestions on how how I could, you know?" And uh, basically, he was fishing. He was saying, "Yeah, he, he wanted me to, you know, and he, Tom, <laughs> Hank, do you want me to do this for you?" <laughs> so oh, I did. Now that you think about it, oh, yeah, you can, yeah, you can give it a try if you like. I guess. Yeah. That's great. I really like that. Yeah, so I did, that and uh, that led to my first <laughs> science publication. And uh, it's a good little paper, actually, if I may say so. <laughs> so <laughs> it's widely so cited. Did... It's very widely cited, anyway. Oh, that's, that's nice. Yeah. So, what did you do in that experiment? You uh, came up with a way to do the measurement, and well, yeah, uh, no, I took the. I mean, I took his apparatus. That was that was fine. And uh, and I took it down to Alan Fowler's lab, and he wasn't mm. too happy that I was doing something else than what he had in mind. But <laughs> he, he 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 was gracious, and he helped me. So I, I set up the tank, heated it, and cooled it uh, with different with different types of fluids, uh, different uh, I think it was silicon oils, no mercury, <laughs> and and I could measure the temperature in the aluminum bar, so I knew the temperature profile along the bottom. And then I had an array of thermistors, which I could lower down and measure the temperature in the fluid. Thermistors are pretty small, so I could lower them all the way down into the bottom boundary layer and get a temperature structure. And then I used uh, aluminum dust in the fluid to visualize the flow patterns. Right. And uh, <clears throat> So I could see how thick the boundary layer was with thick fluids and, and get thinner and thinner. And, oh, and, um, so I ran that for about a month, uh, got the data and uh, calculated heat fluxes, so forth. And from that, I could define what was called a Nusselt number. This is the ratio of heat flux due to the convection to what the heat flux would be if there was no fluid motion at all. And hmm. I could show that the Nusselt number had a behavior. Uh, I never defined a Rayleigh number, which, based, which is based on the temperature difference. 
and showed that the Nusselt number went as the Rayleigh number to the one-fifth power, which is a very slow rate. Hmm. And then in the second month of that, uh, I was back in his office, or actually Melvin Stern's office, and uh, did a scale analysis of the experiment and could indeed show that it should be uh, go as the Rayleigh number to the one-fifth power. So that was pretty cool. Oh, great. Yeah. So you were able to do some scaling to confirm your laboratory results or to yeah. show that it was expected based on the scaling. Oh, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah, that, that must have been a really satisfying moment to see the observations and the theory click and agree with each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It wasn't real theory. It was just scaling analysis. Oh, that. sure. Uh, I count yeah. it. I don't know. I count it. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> scaling is is legit. It's fine. Sometimes it's yeah. the best you can do if you don't know all of the terms. Actually, it's a very nonlinear you know. problem. So I don't think anybody mm. has done any. Uh, and there's no analytical theory for it today. Right, uh, right. But then many people have run the miracle models of it, and mm -hmm. uh, I have done the same. I've taken what others have done and run it at higher and higher rating numbers. There seems to be no limit to how high you can go in the Rayleigh number. It, it's, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, but you can go to very, very high Rayleigh numbers anyway, and it's still one-fifth power law. Huh. So it's a consistent regime for some reason, no matter well, where you are. Well, it basically the... has to do with the thickness of the bottom boundary layer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting. I was kind of wondering... If uh, Ed, was Lorenz around as well uh, at oh, MIT? Yeah, yeah. It, I didn't take yeah. any coursework with him, but uh, uh, certainly saw him and listened to some of the lectures that he would be giving. Uh, on Fridays, uh, every other week, we had what was called the GFD seminar, which was a very famous series that went on from the late 50s throughout the 60s. It was organized by Veronis and uh, Stommel and Lou Howard and uh, maybe Will and Malchus, and uh, every other Friday. And uh, I mean, they, and the people who gave these seminars were the real heavies in the field. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, Stamo pulled a fast one on me. He asked me to give the seminar once. Uh, after I had finished that experiment that fall, mm -hmm. uh, he was obviously impressed. So he thought, he thought I should give that. Seminars. I, I actually did that in the fall of 1963. Which and here I am, I'm just beginning, second-year graduate student, uh, with nothing much to show, and uh, now I'm giving a seminar to him. Hmm. Oh, that's um, great. So it was, that was a, it was a big okay. way. Yeah. I, I, what can I say? Uh, well, no, it, uh, we're, it's a friendly, it's a friendly crowd. I mean. Uh, yeah, so it was okay. <laughs> it was okay. It went went all right. They didn't give you too hard, I guess, too, I guess too much so. of they a hard didn't, time. I, I didn't. No, they didn't give me. Uh, <laughs> they probably saw I was pretty nervous. Uh, guy doesn't know what he's talking about, so we'll leave him alone anyway. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't eject you from the building. You know. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it was like. I don't know if it was like that at the time, but in more recent years, um, I've I haven't done this myself, but I've heard giving a seminar at MIT. Sometimes you get to the first slide, and you know two pe two people in the audience start arguing, and then that's the rest of your time as you just listen to, you know, two professors argue <laughs> over your first slide. Oh and yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've gone through. I gave a lecture at MIT. Uh, actually, my most recent lecture was at Harvard, mm. and Carl Wunsch had moved to Harvard at that point, 
<clears throat> and he immediately got into an argument over something I said uh, with another colleague of his. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I recognize the scene. Uh, but I've given yeah. other lectures at MIT, and it, it's been uh, it's been okay. But I'm not. A, maybe I'm not a very. I'm just an observer. I'm not a very controversial person. <laughs> you just say, "Look, this is what I saw. This is what we observed. Here's the data." <laughs> and you yeah. add your your thoughts thoughts on top of it. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to think about the people that you were around and to kind of consider how young oceanography is as a as a kind of modern scientific field that you don't have to go far very far back before you start encountering the people who really defined everything you know we mentioned uh you know Stommel who you know did did so much of that early theoretical work to establish you know oceanography and uh you know Walter Monk uh he lived to like 101, 102 and just passed away recently. Not, I, not think too he, long ago. I don't think he reached 101, but certainly 100. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, he was another one of those defining kind of people in, in yeah. the field. So, so yeah, I guess um, looking back, it must be pretty interesting to consider that, that, you know, you've got this lineage uh, with, with kind of modern oceanography. You've been able to see the field develop from its kind of infancy into uh, something. Um, much more kind of um well there's many different facets to it now right there's uh, huge op observational campaigns there's robotic observational campaigns there's developments in theory and numerical modeling and even kind of machine learning now so i'm sure there's lots you could comment on about the way that the field has has changed over the decades um, i don't know does that make you think of anything about big big changes you've noticed over the years oh yeah <laughs> it's uh <laughs> i mean basically uh you could almost say that in the 1930s, you know, when Columbus Iselin was the director or the the key person at the Woods Hole Oceanographic, uh, and he was a hydrographer, he he got the Atlantis, the original uh, catch, I guess it was from it was built in Copenhagen in 1930, and it was sailed across uh, the Atlantic in the summer of 1931. My stepfather was on the crew at that time. He got recruited. Um, my mother's uh, second husband, Al Woodcock, quite no, quite well known in his own right. He um, was recruited as a sailor. He had an associate degree in palmology, that is the study of apples, um, oh. uh, here in Massachusetts. And palmology. Uh, he was crewing on a ship on a yacht when he came into Woods Hole, and uh, to get a haircut and uh, asked what was going on across the street. They were building. Uh, this is 1930. They were building the, the Bigelow building, the first building of Woods Hole. Oh, right. And he was told they're looking for people. So he went over and, and signed on with Columbus Island and uh, became part of the crew to sail the Atlantis. Hmm. And, but he, he had, I think everybody had to uh, pull their weight. And so he also had to serve as a marine technician on the Atlantis. So he right. ran all this salts and oxygens to the water samples that they brought up. And, but anyway, 1930s, it was very much a hydrographic type of activity. You, you sailed around, took profiles, and that was really necessary. I mean, uh, we, we just built up a basic picture of what the ocean looked like you know, yeah, in terms of yeah. temperatures, salts, and oxygens. The Germans were very active too, uh, starting in the 1920s after World War One, and of course elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. That whole technology was developed by the Scandinavians, especially the Swedes, the Norwegians, Helen Hansen and Nansen, 
and then you've heard of Copenhagen water, that is the water standard that was used to uh, when you did the titrating of salts. So, but all that went on in, uh, clear through the 50s, you could almost say, after World War II, uh, even, even after we had built atomic bombs and uh, nuclear submarines, we were still a pretty primitive science. Uh, we couldn't even measure currents. I mean, we had the right. Ackman current meter, but we couldn't measure currents. Stalin hmm. was aware of those things. Um, so he built a surface drifter at some point in the early 50s, I believe, that was radio tracked. He already, in the late 40s, he was, he was in Woodhull during the war. So he was well aware, at, at some point he became well aware of what's called the deep sound channel, but a so far channel in the ocean. That was probably highly classified during the war, <clears throat> the, uh, the recognition of that, because that had a lot to do with listening for submarines and so forth. But uh, that was a major discovery, uh, uh, because it means that in the sound channel, any sound that's emitted in the sound channel can be heard for hundreds, if not thousands of kilometers. In fact, it's that sound channel that's the, behind Walter Monk's uh, Heard Island experiment, the fact that sound will propagate such enormous distances. Uh, right. So already, I think it was 1949 in one, a deep sea research paper that Hank had indicated we could use the sound channel to track underwater drifters. Hmm. And so he had this notion of a gondola drifting at a certain depth in the sound channel. And every so often this gondola would release a small uh, depth charge of TNT or whatever, really, <laughs> and uh, it would drift. It would sink down below the the gondola. The gondola would have to be above. Yeah, and when it reaches the critical pressure, this detonates, sends a signal that is picked up by hydrophones <laughs> around the, the ocean. That's amazing. Uh, that was never built, of course. Uh, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> but it gives you uh, the point is that he he uh, the idea uh, he, uh, was there. <laughs> So, uh, and this is where my, this is where he starts my career in a very serious way. Uh, as I was finishing up my PhD work at MIT, he walks into my office, my lab actually, uh, in January of 1966, and starts talking uh, about stuff that I had absolutely no clue about. But he says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing this fairly accurately. Uh, he called me Tommy, by the way, which I hated. <laughs> So he, uh, hey, Tommy, um, uh, Doug Webb uh, and Tommy Tucker are going to be in Bermuda next week to do some uh, uh, long-range testing of underwater signals. What's that all about? I didn't know Doug Webb. I, I didn't know Tommy Tucker. I didn't know about long-range signaling. Uh, right. So he described those things. So sorry, who was it talking to you in this situation? Who came into your lab? Hank Stommel. It was Stommel, yeah, okay. And I knew him, but I, I mean, I hadn't really seen him since class. I mean, since that, uh, the, in that experiment in 1963. Uh, mm. um, I mean, I would he eventually moved. He came, the, the following year, he moved to MIT. From, so starting in 1964, he left Harvard and, and came to MIT. Right. Uh, <clears throat> so he's on the faculty there. And, uh, of course, people were well-funded in those days. This is post-Swiftic and uh, science was hot. So he explained what he was trying to say, and I quickly grasped what was going on, of course. And uh, I said, hey, that's what he wanted to do was 
see if I could get involved with this float program to develop, um, I haven't described this, but the idea was to make floats that drift at depth rather than use explosives. They emit a coded signal, uh, an acoustic signal, yeah. which yeah. you pick up from various hydrophones. And um, the hydrophones were there. I'll get to that in a second. But Doug Webb, an engineer in Woods Hole, I did not know their name, and Tommy Tucker, who was rather famous in England already at the time. He was from uh, National Oceanographic Center. He worked with internal waves and acoustics. He was on sabbatical at MIT. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow Hank had put the two of them together. So they were going to test this long-range signaling at Bermuda, where there's, where there's a listening station. And Gordon Volkman, a, a technician at Woods Hole, or a scientist at Woods Hole, was out on the chain some hundreds of kilometers away. He was going to lower the sound source, and they were just going to see if they could pick up the signal. Mm-hmm. The big issue was what is the attenuation rate in the ocean? Yeah, that, how quickly does that it? Was how quickly does it? But the numbers were very shaky, so we yeah. needed to get a sense of how. How quickly that signal damps out, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> it wasn't so bad. It turned out it wasn't so bad. It's, it's pretty good. So I took a week's break from my writing and doing my last experiments with, his, with, the, with the mercury. I was still in the mercury work. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, I told him I need to talk with my wife about this, whether she, what she thinks about it all. Uh, but we agreed, and so I went to uh, the following week. I flew into Bermuda uh, to just learn a little bit about what they were doing. Did your wife go with you? Was it a, a joint trip to Bermuda, or did she? Have oh, to it was just a quick airplane, a quick airplane flight to Bermuda, Boston to Bermuda, and back. Yeah. Okay. And uh, but uh, and uh, and Doug took a liking to me, and I certainly took a liking to him, and. Uh, then for many, many years after that, we worked closely together. So this became the start of what became the SOPA float program. Uh, mm-hmm. It would be right. many years before we had anything to show, but uh, we divvied up the t- I was to be the scientist in the program, and he was the engineer developing the floats and putting them in the water. These are rather big monsters. You can see pictures of them in, in various publications. Mm-hmm. Um, so... We so he developed the floats and I developed the tracking system and the analysis uh, for tracking and so forth. And so I stayed on at MIT as kind of a postdoc for a couple of years. But during the uh, second year of that period, I we moved to Woods Hole. Uh, so I most of the time worked in Woods Hole and would commute mm-hmm. with Hank Hank Stamon to once a week to see a graduate student with whom I was working on the development of some of the electronics. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Bruce Magnell was his name. Uh, we used to joke that he puts the sound in the water and I get the sound out of the water. Um, <laughs> <laughs> turning sound into numbers. Yeah. Turning, yes, and then, sound, yeah. yeah. So we, we, we got one float in the water and it lasted for, uh, I forget how long, 10 days or something like that. We put two more in the water, and they didn't last at all. Uh, they quit almost perfectly immediately. So Doug, to his great credit, came up with an idea for how to redesign the float, and that became the long aluminum pipe, which is what became the right. standard uh, throughout the 1970s. Uh, yeah. And that led to that became the tool that we used in what's called the mode experiment, mid-ocean dynamics experiment, in 1973. And we put out 20 floats. And um, 
he was on the researcher ship doing that deployment work. And I was, uh, I had men on four islands, Bermuda, Eleuthera, Grand Turk, and Puerto Rico, where we had underwater hydrophones. These had nothing to do with the Navy. The Navy had their systems, which were classified. We didn't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. But there were other hydrophones in the water, <clears throat> right in the sound channel, at the, on the axis, right at the depth of the sound channel minimum, which were used, uh, they were called the uh, Atlantic Missile, they were part of what's called the Atlantic Missile Range. And these were used to determine the splashdown point of missiles that were sent from uh, Cape Canaveral. Oh, wow. <clears throat> Either land-based or more likely Polaris submarines from the submarines will go through the Florida Strait and shoot a missile up, and it will be targeted to a certain area in the Atlantic. And uh, when it hits the surface, it drops a small, a tiny little charge that sinks down to sound channel depth and goes pop. Hmm. And then uh, from the time of arrivals of those pops, uh, of that signal, at these so far listening stations, you can determine the splashdown point of the... Uh, missile <clears throat> quite accurately. Uh, I don't know how accurate, but I'll say 100 meters. Uh, oh, well. The accuracy yeah. had less to do with the acoustics and a lot more to do with how well the sound channel was calibrated. And for that purpose, the Navy had, um, or the Air Force, whichever it was, they had a lab in Bermuda and a ship that uh, would go out to the area where the missile was going to come down. And by whatever means, they determined as carefully as they could where they were hmm. and dropped their charge and thereby calibrate the sound channel in all directions. Right, right. Like, so you have something where you, you know where it is, you release a, a charge, or yeah. you have an explosion at that particular location. And you yes, and then the missile comes in hmm. and, you, and you, it becomes a differential calculation. Right, okay, yeah. So anyway, uh, I had to go to these various stations, instrument them, and then uh, get people to stay at the stations so that they could report every day what the floats were, what the time of arrivals of these signals. Hmm. So that way, we actually had a real-time tracking of all the floats drifting around in the ocean. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it's and, amazing uh, to think about the that's basically the precursor to the Argo float network, which we have today, which is, you know, the network of thousands of these robotic floats in the ocean. Only now they and believe it or not, And believe it or not, the Argo floats inspiration comes from these floats. Yeah, yeah, I could believe that. Yeah, because, I mean, you mentioned yeah. the cylindrical design, the kind of vertical upright design. That's something that Argo still uses today. Well, yeah, no, that has, no, that's not the reason. The reason then later on, we developed what's called the Rafos float. Mm. which is the SOPAR float, uh, uh, where we anchor the SOPAR floats, and they become an acoustic navigation system. Mm. And the rainforest floats that we put out are short glass pipes that do all the listening. So as they drift around, they pick up the uh, arrival times from the anchored SOPAR floats. So we can't track them in real time because they're just recording the data inside the float. Mm. But then at the end of their mission, whether it's a few months or a year later, they come up to the surface and send all their accumulated data to, um, to a satellite to us. <clears throat> and then we can reconstruct what the floats did. So we've done a lot of research for that. Um, but Doug Webb and Russ Davis were a little bit frustrated, and a lot of others actually, were a bit frustrated that we had to put out this uh, acoustic navigation system to track the floats. 
So they came up with the obvious idea of, well, let's skip all that. Let's just come up to the surface once in a while and say, here I am. Go back down. And drift. <laughs> right. Here I am. And drift down. And here I am. And those were called Alice floats, autonomous Lagrangian circulation explorer. I think Russ was responsible for that. But they did not get any temperature information. Oh, really? So then they added temperature, as I understand it. So they became profiling Alice floats. And that's when they were known as palace floats. I'm not making this up. <laughs> no, yeah, pro, pro, profiling Alice floats. So, okay, so that approach, yes, that design that approach they, of... Acronyms are very important in science. <laughs> but then, of course, the hydrographers wanted to get into the picture, and they said, God damn it, we have to have salt in there as well. I agree. So that's <laughs> when they, they became profiling temperature and salinity. And, of course, in the beginning, the salinity was a challenging sensor. But that, mm -hmm. they, they've worked that out pretty well. Uh, and uh, so now... And uh, now we have this global array of uh, Apex or uh, whatever the brand is. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you, you mentioned so that approach of coming up to the surface, having a float come up to the surface and announce where it is. Yeah. That, that's, that's, a, that's, that's the idea. Clear. That's getting rid of the acoustics. They're getting rid of it. But of course, then there were a lot of people who said, but you can't do that because it's the trajectory is going to get interrupted. It has to stay on the surface. It takes a while mm. to get up there and go back down. And then you have to broadcast, and you can't broadcast quickly in those days. Uh, the oh, surface right. argo system takes a while. Right. And uh, so there were various papers about this is really not a good way if you want to be a Lagrangian. So, and indeed, mm -hmm. uh, the Lagrangian aspect uh, kind of got lost. Uh, and the argo array is really a profiling system. Right. Uh, right. And uh, Michel Olitreau and... Uh, Alain Colin de Verrier, a few years ago, wrote a very, very nice paper where they took all of the tracking data, that is, where they come up in, uh, between surfacing points and constructed a mean flow of the global ocean at mm. 1,000 meters depth. So it's a kind of a heroic piece of work, actually. But uh, how important it is, we'll have to see. But it, but it is, it, no, I, I've used it. It's, 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 uh, it's an impressive piece of work. Yeah. But they used it. They used it. That's an Eulerian picture of the mean circulation. It's, it's not a Lagrangian study at all. So the Lagrangian stuff has gotten lost completely. Mm. And it's a profiling system. But in that capacity, it's been fantastic. And we all use it. Right, right. Yeah, I see what you mean. If you want a Lagrangian or a flow following picture of the ocean, then it's not ideal to have your float come all the way up to the surface and interrupt what it's doing and then come all the way back down that right. like you said you've interrupted its trajectory so that's now a different view of the ocean than you yeah. would have before um yeah yeah i have I a guess... colleague my a former student of mine uh amy bauer she is now preeminent in using the, the rafles float uh for lagrangian studies and she's done a lot of really beautiful work um, okay, yeah. Yeah, I've heard the name a, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also d different 
ways to kind of measure that kind of flow. I know there's various tracer experiments these days, uh, not so much Lagrangian, but you know, there are tracer flow experiments these days, like the yeah. Dimes tracer and um, loads of them in the, in the North Atlantic. There's so many in the North Atlantic that the signals are starting to get all mixed up from the releases of these various synthetic chemicals that people are using to, you know, to, yeah. to map the, the flow of the ocean in various ways. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's really interesting. That, that gave me a really nice picture of, the kind of your involvement with the world of of floats and i, I really hadn't fully appreciated that historical shift from and uh, away from uh having to sense where the floats are using acoustics to just having them pop up um i mean it's it, it is a, a clear shift but yeah i think i now feel like i have a better appreciation for that kind of historically um so yeah that's that's a big thing that's changed uh, in, yes, in but we still use we still use the acoustic technique. Uh, we still use it. Uh, uh, Amy uses it. Amy Bauer uses it quite extensively. Uh, just recently, in the OSNAP experiment, she published a beautiful paper of deep circulation between the eastern and western sides of the Reykjanes Ridge, uh, mm -hmm. the Mid Atlantic Ridge, and the northern North Atlantic. And uh, I have worked with a colleague of mine in Norway, also a former student, Henrik Seiland where we have used Rafer's flows to look at the flow of warm water into the North, into the Nordic seas and how it spreads out there. And right now I'm working, uh, I'm not really working, but uh, I have a colleague here. Uh, no, I don't do anything practical anymore, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I have a colleague here, uh, Melissa Oman, the young, uh, very capable scientist, but she's also an engineer. So, uh, She's developing a next generation uh, float. She calls her floats minions, and these are mm. they have a different purpose, but they will also we're we're hoping to make them into a next version, next generation version of a Rafos float. Um, and the beauty of the Rafos float, these are glass pipe instruments, is that we can make them uh, not only float at a certain depth, we can make them float on a certain isopycnal. Yeah, a certain density is, surface. Yeah. yeah. On density surfaces, which is really mm -hmm. quite important because due to vertical shear, and because yeah, um, in the in the ocean, if you just leave something by itself and let it drift around, it often tends to follow these density surfaces. Or you can imagine the parcel of water follow. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the kind of first order picture is you know following a density surface. Yeah, so these these are much yeah. closer to what a dye does. Right. So now we can quantify what a dye is doing, and in fact, we just had a paper published last week in Geophysical Research Letters where we analyzed some data that we had collected a long time ago. We, uh, Dave Hebert and I had put out 90 Rafos floats in the Eastern Atlantic uh, back in 2003. And uh, I, looked at, I looked at a subset of these uh, where the, I took those floats that had settled on the same isopycnum, that is within a tenth of a degree centigrade, mm. uh, within, within 10 meters of each other in the vertical. They were deployed in clusters. So they were deployed very tightly. And, uh, but I took only those floats that were within a tenth of a degree of each other. And I looked at how they separate over time. Right. And they don't. <laughs> more accurately, they separate much, much more slowly than uh, the, the population as a whole because they are so oh, close together in the vertical. So right. there's no, any vertical shear, the, the vertical shear that's there is pretty much removed because they're on the same density surface. Hmm. So wow. for the first 30 odd days, they, 
they only separate out to about five kilometers after 30 days, which is not much. I mean, they may have gone some distance, but they've only separated a small amount. And uh, but then by the time they get out to 10 kilometers, five, 10 kilometers, then the mesoscale field is starting to come in and they start right. acting on them separately. So then after, once they get out to those scales, the separations, then they, mm. the vertical is not so important any longer. Yeah. They get stirred up by ocean weather, so to speak, you know, ocean yeah. eddies and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also read there was a different thread of your research where, um, you were putting acoustic Doppler current profilers on merchant marine vessels that you were oh, one, yeah, of the, yeah. one of the people involved in that is a, uh, would you like to speak oh, to I'm that? I'm probably one of the key, I'm, I'm probably one of the key people actually. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, because we started this already in 1992 uh, with a freighter that goes between uh, New York, New Jersey and Bermuda. Uh, called the Oleander, <clears throat> we knew it was being, I had learned that it was going to be built, or it was being built back in 1990. So I uh, made a point of visiting that yard where the ship was being built in Holland and uh, met the chief engineer, Kortuin, and I, I had sent him a draft of the proposal for what we had in mind, which I had which I was doing, which Harley Flagg, he's now at Stony Brook, excellent guy. But this is on uh, Ascension Day in Holland, and, and in Europe, you know, Ascension Day is, is, is shut down, everything is quiet. Uh, but he agreed to meet me anyway at the yard, although there was nobody there. And uh, the ship was still in three pieces, the bow, the center section, and the aft section. They hadn't welded it together yet. But I told him what I wanted to do. He had seen the draft that proposed, and he didn't let me finish my sentence. And he said, that's a really good idea. Let's go to the ship and see where we can put the thing. Oh, nice. uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I thought I was going to have to twist his arm, you know, come on, give me a break. And, and yeah. it was the other way around. And it's been like that. With, <laughs> I mean, everybody. So your proposal was to put a... Uh, a current meter, a thing that can that you can use acoustic signals to measure currents on a commercial ship, so that wherever the commercial ship is going, you know, back and forth between ports, making all these deliveries, it's it's collecting scientific data the whole time as it's ticking along. And then I, I guess every now and then a scientist comes along and gets it. And but I'm glad that the industry overall has been receptive to that, or people have been receptive to that, because uh, I know it's a, a huge source of data. Um, for our kind of hydrographic knowledge over the years, it's really really helped us as a field map map the the world ocean. Guess yeah. they do the same with well, aircraft. Uh, these instruments, by the way, are called acoustic Doppler current profilers, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they uh, just sit in the hull of the ship, and uh, they just ping. And they have four beams that go down obliquely, and they measure the the Doppler shift of the signal that's reflected back by. Uh, necton, uh, or mainly zooplankton, zooplankton. Mm. and uh, it's a function of depth. Depending on the frequency, you can go deeper. The lower the frequency, the deeper you can reach. With the 38 kilohertz, the lowest frequency, you can get down to about 1,000, 1,200 meters, uh, which is pretty mm-hmm. impressive. And that gets you across the main thermocline everywhere in the world, um, not into deep water, but across the thermocline anyway. Right, right. Yeah, the and, threshold uh, where the, the temperature changes quickly over the Yes. Over the thermocline, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. So, uh, and we've been running that since uh, the fall of 1992 with only small interruptions up until uh, 
I think it's the end of 2018, when uh, the instrument, the second generation instrument failed and the new ship was coming. So we have not, we didn't bother repairing it because it was such a short period of time. The ship, the new ship arrived in early 2019, but we have had lots of problems getting the instrument, the new instrumentation working on the new ship. We're collecting some data, but uh, we don't have a good operation yet. We will, but okay. it's going to take. Okay. COVID has been a big headache, of course. Uh, we can't compete oh, yeah. for a year and a half. We haven't been able to get on the ship. Uh, yeah. This is a supply vessel for Bermuda, so they are extraordinarily cautious. Uh, they can't afford to have a, uh, that ship be incapacitated. Oh, right. So yeah, I'm sure. They're very strict. So they're properly strict. But we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. And the company is very cooperative. Very, I mean, uh, this is something they can show. We're, we're being helpful. In fact, that's yeah. the attitude of all these ships. Uh, we're more than willing to help. We only have one requirement. Don't bother in us in our work. Yeah, let us get on with what we need to do, and you can take your measurements. That's that's fine yeah. and good. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So we're trying to carry that forward now. I mean, I've worked with three ships: the the Oleander to Bermuda, the freighter container vessel that runs between Denmark and Nuuk in Greenland, going across the uh, North Atlantic at sixty degrees north. Mm. Uh, that has led to some fantastic work publications. And then finally, uh, a ferry boat that goes from Denmark, uh, goes out of the Faroes to Denmark and to Norway, uh, to um, Iceland. So it goes along the uh, Iceland Ferry Ridge and across mm -hmm. the Faroe Shetland Channel, measuring currents. And that has been extremely valuable. We've had lots of problems with bubbles, but we still have gotten quite mm -hmm. valuable data. And uh, so these two ships, the Nuka Arctica that goes to Greenland and the Norrena that goes to Iceland, uh, have given, have allowed us to look at fluxes in the Northeast Atlantic and even do things like flux divergences, heat fluxes, heat flux divergences, fresh and freshwater divergences. That has never been, uh, really been possible before. Uh, hmm. and hopefully it will get better as time goes on now that we're learning how to do these things. Oh, yeah. Um, but this is another step, as you were saying, in how the science is progressing. Uh, uh, we're doing things that we couldn't do before. Yeah, that's right. In the case of these ships, in the case of these ships, it's not just the, it's not just the ADCP that's important, Dan. It's just as crucial is the GPS system. Because mm. we have to know exactly what the ship is doing. Right. Because we have to take out the ship's motion to get motion over the bottom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, I've I've only been to sea one time. I'm mostly a computational and theoretical uh, oceanographer, but I, I did get to go to sea one time, and my role on the ship was to work with the ADCP data, oh. and we we had a, a bunch of scripts that were designed to do exactly what you're talking about of taking out the ship's motion and removing you know the ship's motion from all the data, and uh, it's still challenging. It's still uh, you still get quite noisy data <laughs> even if you've been very very careful about taking the the ship's motion into account so it's uh always impressive when somebody manages to get like a clean robust result out of their adcp data because it's uh it's, it's like you said it's really important that we have that but uh it's not just a case of downloading the data and making some plots you got to do quite a lot of careful pre-processing 
yes. uh, before yes. you. So I, I wrote up my little thing and it's in our cruise report and I, I don't know if it's any good or not, but I tried to, <laughs> I tried to do my best <laughs> to remove the ship motion and get some reasonable signals well, we, out of there. Yeah, we have one advantage uh, over uh, the research environment in that this is a stable operation. It's going back and forth and back and forth. Mm. So once you get the algorithms set up, the, pro the procedures set up, the algorithms in place, uh, it's, it, it, we know what to do. And, mm. um, and, uh, but the, the thing that's most critical besides ADCP itself is actually not position, but ship heading. Right. The heading is crucial because you, if you have, if you're off by, uh, at these speeds, they're running, uh, you know, 15, 20 knots. If you're off by a, a degree, hmm. uh, you're going to, you, and you don't know that, or, or you're in error by one degree, you're going to put in a cross track velocity hmm. on the order of 14 centimeters per second, if I remember. <laughs> and that will kill you. I mean, it's just yeah. useless. That's so you right. have to be down at the tenth of a degree or better to get down to the accuracy of the instrument better. Mm. And ideally, so far as we know, we don't have any biases in these measurements. So even if there's an instantaneous error, they seem to average out. Uh, mm. yeah. But the, the heading is crucial. If you don't know exactly where you are, that doesn't matter quite as much. But the heading is absolutely I mean, both are important, but the heading is crucial. That makes sense. Yeah, you're trying to measure a set of velocities, and so you need to know, yeah. you know, your <clears throat> velocity cross, carefully. It's usually it's the cross-track velocity that you're mainly interested in. Mm, yeah, yeah. I guess I should give myself some credit because we were in the Southern Ocean on research vessel, research vessel, so we were uh, moving around quite a lot. The, the crew's very good. That's that's not a comment on the crew. Obviously, it's just it's the Southern Ocean, <laughs> so it's very <laughs> lots of waves uh, and lots yeah. of uh, you know storms and things. <laughs> I haven't been down there. <laughs> Thirty degrees south. No, I've been south of Cape Town. On a cruise south of South Africa, but I haven't been into the roaring forties mm. or the howling fifties or whatever they're called. Well, maybe that's the it's cold down there. Maybe you did the smart thing. Like, you know what? I'm gonna to stick to Bermuda and the tropics yeah. and the subtropics <laughs> where it's pleasant. Uh yeah. it's a, a good idea. So I know you you've already talked about it a little bit elsewhere, so we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but I thought it could be interesting to talk about the Gulf Stream a little bit. Um because sure. yeah, that's that's uh you know, just last year, there was a big kind of New York Times highlight piece on, you know, you're shaking your head already, uh, um, uh, Romsdorf, Romsdorf's uh, suggestion that the uh, North Atlantic overturning had slowed down by by 15 percent. And um, and I thought, you know, in the article they did, if you go all the way to the end, they do mention they, they talked to Susan Lozier a little bit. And Susan Lozier is more cautious about that. And she says that the the, the data is not really there or to support the idea that the AMOC, uh, at least the Gulf Stream kind of part of the AMOC has slowed down. Uh, I understand it's a very vigorous you know, research area and part of what makes it difficult is that we can't really measure that circulation directly, that we have to kind of infer it based on the hydrography. So it makes it difficult to... We measure it in some places, but you know, if you go, want to go back decades, then we, we don't have that. Well, I, uh, yes, I mean, if we're going back more than 20 years, we have a problem because we didn't measure yeah. currents uh, right. uh, earlier than that, uh, by direct means anyway. 
But these two ships that I mentioned, the Nuka Arctica and the Norena, well, the, the Oleander too, for that matter, these have been measuring currents, upper ocean flows. Mm-hmm. And um, at least during those periods of time, the Gulf Stream or the, the flow into Nordic seas, they, they do vary, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But trends, uh, absolutely not. Uh, mm. That last paper in Nature a few months ago by uh, Caesar et al., uh, but I think Ramsdorf is the key person behind that, because uh, that's kind of been a thesis of his that the Gulf Stream's got to be slowing down. Uh-huh. Um, it, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit... Uh, the problem with the most recent paper is, uh, and I have read that fairly carefully, uh, not so much as a uh, paleo-oceanographer, mm-hmm. uh, but more as a, as a physical oceanographer, but I have been in discussion with the paleo people rather extensively about that paper. And one of the one of the interesting points that they have made is that there's nothing actually new in that paper. Mm. Uh, there are no new measurements in that paper. It's, uh, <laughs> they are citing other papers, including their own work. And it's kind of a reprocessing of earlier data. But the, the saddest aspect of it is, or the most disturbing aspect maybe, I should say, is that they have, whether deliberately or not, uh, they have uh, been rather selective in picking out data sets that support the point of view that they want to make. Mm. And many of my colleagues in these discussions that we have had uh, have pointed out there are other data sets that don't support that point of view. Mm-hmm. So they made the point in this last paper, most recent one, that the Gulf Stream or the MOC is slowing down precipitously since the 1950s. Uh, but you don't think you don't think it's there. You don't think the full. The, the, it's the, not the, the that I don't think it's there. I know. I know it's not mm-hmm. there. And I know that sounds <laughs> presumptuous, but uh, I'm aware of that. But. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason I I say that is, first of all, I do know that in the last 70 years or so, uh, there has been no slowdown of the flow of warm water going into the Nordic seas. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is quite clear. First of all, the the Scandinavians have been measuring these flows, uh, the overflows for certainly the last 20, 25 years. And they are making the point in their publications, Boye Hansen in particular, uh, Sir Nestor Hughes, that there is no evidence of a slowdown of the overflow. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are some changes in the water properties overflowing, but the right. rate of overflow is quite stable. Mm-hmm. It varies a little bit. It's the same also in the Denmark Straits, um, where the Germans have been quite active. Uh, so mm-hmm. the overflows have been stable uh, for some time. Now, it's a limited period of time. Mm-hmm. But last year, Leon Shafik and I and uh, Loïc Couper we wrote a paper in Geophysical Research Letters where we, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. It's, um, it's a hydrographic paper, but we take all of the observations, hydrographic stations that have been taken in the Rockall Trough, just south of all the warm waters going into the Nordic Seas. And we take all the hydrographic stations that we can find in the Southern Norwegian Sea, just north of all the warm waters going into the Nordic Seas, that is between Iceland and Scotland. We, we merged the two together, the Iceland, Scotland. I'm sorry, the stuff going between the Faroes and Iceland and the Faroes and Scotland. We merged those. We treat that as one body of water going in. Okay, yep. And then we look at the dynamic height difference between the two. 
Mm. And that gives us the velocity field relative to some reference level. Yeah. But then this is the key. We also have this freighter, the Norena, the passenger, the ferry boat going between Denmark and Iceland. So that's measuring the absolute velocity. So we can reference these hydrographic measurements uh, to a, 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 a reference velocity that we have from the Norena. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we can put hard numbers on the transports. But even more importantly, we can look at how the hydrography Signal, hydrographic signal is changing over the last 70 years. We can do it from about 1950, and uh, there are also some stations in the 30s, but they're not as yeah. many, so the statistics are not as good. But there's no evidence, mm. period. There's no yeah. evidence of yeah. a slowdown over the last 70 years. We see the Atlantic, we see the uh, AMO, the multi-decadal oscillation or, right. or variability, but that's a, that's a variation superimposed. We don't, there's no trend. Right. Right, right. Yeah, and I've also seen you make the careful point in interviews elsewhere that that doesn't say anything about what will happen in the future. That's just what the data reflects right now is, right. you know, it's that that particular signal, if that is going to happen at some point, which looking at the IPCC suggestions, their projections, uh, when I say there, I mean IPCC is a, is a synthesis of a bunch of published research, but that synthesis suggest that the AMOC is likely to weaken, but very unlikely to collapse entirely. Um, exactly. Which is, that's a projection, you know, over the rest of the century. But it's really interesting to note that, you know, certainly by, by your perspective and by the data you're talking about, there there isn't evidence for a slowdown right now in, of parts parts of the that circulation. Um, yeah, that's, no, that's really there's, interesting. There's, there's, there's more to that, Dan. Uh, mm -hmm. The um, now that's only the Nordic Seas portion. Then we right, have right. the that's the producing the deep water in the North Atlantic. Then yeah. we have the overturning of the MOC. That that's the shallower part that's coming out of the Labrador Sea and the Irminger Sea. Mm -hmm. So so I'm not aware of any slowdown. But uh, if there's any slowdown, it would have to be in the North Atlantic. Uh, but I'm not aware of, of that right, going right. on at all. Okay. So, but the point is that. Uh, the, the hypothesis for what is going to drive the slowdown is the freshwater melt from Greenland spreading south and mixing with the North Atlantic to, to freshen the North Atlantic waters that are going north and into the Nordic seas mm -hmm. such that it makes it more difficult for them to sink uh, in the wintertime. Right. That's, right. that's the hypothesis. I, as far as I know, that is the, the driving reason. Mm. The problem with that hypothesis is that you have to get the fresh water to the North Atlantic salt water. That's not easy to do mm. because you have to take it. It's coming off Greenland. It has to wrap all the way around the Labrador Sea. It has to go down along the Grand Banks and it has to somehow get mixed into the, uh, into the North Atlantic current. <clears throat> mm -hmm. so that's a very circuitous path. And I mean, it's just an increase in freshwater flow. It's not like it's starting all of a sudden. Uh, <clears throat> we're increasing the freshwater flow, but it's got a very circuitous path, and we're not seeing any evidence of that. We do see freshwater. We do see freshening, and uh, and and what's the opposite? Freshening, uh, increasing salinity. Yeah. Salinification. We see that <laughs> salinification sure. of. of well, I mean, you've seen Penny Holiday's uh, recent paper in in, uh, in Nature. We had a huge freshwater signal. Uh, 
but these are fluctuations. Uh, <clears throat> and that was actually about a big freshwater signal. Uh, so it, mm. it's a challenge to get that. It, it's, it's a challenge to get that freshwater to uh, yeah. to the saltwater to impact it in a people. Mm. Uh, maybe even Ramsdorf has said this. Uh, I'm not sure now, but some people have this vision of the freshwater coming off Greenland and settling in the in the Erminger Sea and uh, freshening that body of water. And no doubt there is some of that going on. But that is not a key. Uh, I should be careful here because I don't know any numbers on this. But uh, my impression mm. is that most of the waters work their way on the shelf around Greenland and mm. uh, into the Labrador Sea. Actually, that is an interesting research question. How much water is actually leaking off the Greenland shelf? That's something we badly need to know better. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Good question. I, I wanted to, I was keeping my eye on the time a little bit, and I wanted to give you a chance to answer some of these questions that we like to ask on the show. I like to ask people what they've learned about different areas, um, you know, something that you've learned over your, your lifetime. So if that's all right, um, why don't we shift gears into that topic? Does that sound all right? Should we, should we do that? Okay, sure. Yeah. So can you tell me, we've, We've talked about this a little bit in some capacity already, but I would just like to hear what this brings up for you, what you happen to think when I ask, um, what's something that you've learned about science over the years, about how it works, something that maybe uh, people might not be aware of if they're not directly working in science themselves, or just some perspective on how the whole thing works that, you, that you've noticed? I never knew it was going to be as fun as it is. Hey. <laughs> That's a good answer. So yeah, you you found it to be really fun and enjoyable. That's great. Yes, working with the graduate students has been so much fun. Uh, I've been very fortunate on that. Uh, I've had some terrific students, uh, and many of them are still active in the field, uh, which is very uh, pleasing to know. Yeah, um, you can support those folks yeah. and you know watch them flourish in different ways. Yes, I, mean, I have students in Brazil, I have students in Mexico, I have students in, I mean, single persons in these countries, but uh, mm -hmm. um, in Norway, uh, in the United States, uh, and they're, they're all contributing uh, in, in, their, in their ways, they're teachers or they're scientists, or, um, uh, mm. and they were fun to work with, uh, you know, as students. I mean, it, it was not... It was very different from what I imagined the academic world was like as, as a young person. I did not want to go into academia at all. I, I mean, I wanted to be an engineer. And mm. deep down, I'm probably still more an engineer than I am a scientist. Uh, mm. But of course, that's changed over the years. <clears throat> but uh, pretty quickly when I came to Rhode Island, I have been at Yale for several years, for seven years, but I didn't have any students there. And uh, I was a teacher, but I pretty much was on my own. But here at uh, the School of Oceanography, uh, I, I was hit with three students already the first year. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't looking for them, but they put them on me. And uh, the two PhDs uh, worked out super well. Uh, one is at the University of Washington today, Steve Reiser. He's the key, yeah. one of the key people in the Argo program here in the United States. Right, yeah. Who's the and other one? A, the other one is Dean Remick, Dean, Dean, Dean Remick in, at Scripps. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, he, he's been kind of a mastermind in, in organizing this. Steve has been more operational, but he's also played a key role in developing the bio 
cargo floats, uh, uh, adding uh, oxygen and nitrates and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, that actually leads really nicely in, into my next question. What's something you've learned about mentoring? You know, you've mentored all these people and worked with all these graduate students. Uh, do you, does that make you? What What do you have to say about about that? About the mentoring process? What's something you learned about that? Well, again, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> it's uh, well, it's a give and take process. You're you're not a proctor or anything like that. You're not a yeah. Uh, you're you're learning together. Uh, yes. Uh, we were doing science together. As a matter of fact, uh, during those years, uh, I I did not actually publish a whole lot myself by myself. I mean, I'm. We published together with students. Uh, we researched together. I mean, it's their work, but of course, I I helped them get going and so forth. And, and depending on the student, uh, the nature of the advice and the assistance uh, would vary. Uh, but it would be a partnership because I I'm learning just as much as they are in the process. Yeah, it, yeah. It's 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 a partnership. It's a it's a, it's a wonderful. Uh, I didn't Absolutely. know that beforehand. I, I, I didn't know it was going <laughs> to, as I said, I had no ambition at all to go into academics. Uh, right, uh, right. And uh, so it's fun. I think that's a useful thing to know, like if for the people who might be students right now or who might be, you know, postdocs to understand that, that you're in a partnership, that you are bringing something to the table, you are contributing it can feel intimidating to be in that position, right? Because you, you feel like you don't know anything, but it's it's important to recognize that, yeah, you are bringing value to the, the process. You know, it, if you're showing up and putting your effort in and putting your time in, then you're, you're, you're adding to that partnership. And it's important to remember that you know, the person who's advising you or is your mentor is uh, probably getting a lot out of it too. They're also yes. learning along the way. And I, I have to say that the students that have come here to... Uh, the School of Oceanography, uh, it's maybe the same everywhere, I, I don't know, but uh, they they come with their eyes open and they they are interested in oceanography and and um, they they want to accomplish something. So it's not like they're going to school. This is they, 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 yes, they take classes in the beginning and they get graded and all that stuff. But uh, this is just the this is just the preamble to uh, uh, getting involved with the research. Uh, some students, not many, but some students uh, come to realize that this may not be what they're cut out to do, uh, mm-hmm. whatever reason. Uh, I have the vast majority uh, impatient to get on with uh, getting involved with uh, their research. And typically they yeah. do get involved very quickly. I mean, while they're mm-hmm. doing their coursework. coursework. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I don't want to teach anymore. That goes without saying, but uh, <laughs> I do miss the interaction with the students. And uh, right. yeah, I keep telling the students around here that I'm willing to serve on their committees, but not be their advisors. Because <laughs> if I'm on their committee, I have to read their theses and I, I, I get to learn something. Right. Without necessarily the day-to-day you know, responsibility of keeping everything yeah. ticking right. over, but you still get to right. learn something new every now and then. Um, this might seem like an obvious question, but I I have to ask you, like, um, what would you say to somebody who is interested in getting into oceanography or even just the general kind of earth system science right now? 
do you have any advice for someone in that position? Well, for me as a physical oceanographer, the key thing is to get mathematics and physics under your belt, mm-hmm. I mean, into your head. Yeah, uh, yeah. And actually physics is almost more important because that is uh, an important intuition builder. Intuition is such a key part of the scientific process, uh, uh, imagining things going forward, wondering how things might work or how, uh, how things connect. And a mathematics background is very good, especially if you're going to be a theoretician. And it's important anyways, um, because that's the language with which we articulate these things. But the the physics is important just to develop an intuition for how things relate to each other. And on that score, I've been extraordinarily fortunate uh, because my dad was a teacher. He was a professor at the University of Chicago during the war years. he ran the U.S. Meteorological Training Program. Mm. You may not know this, but uh, this is in Hyde Park in southern Chicago. And we live three blocks away from what's called the Museum of Science and Industry, mm. which is a very famous uh, museum on the south side of Chicago. And inside there were all these experiments that you could see operating, uh, like the Jacob's Ladder, where you have this spark that goes between two electrodes that climbs up the ladder until it finally breaks. Uh, like the ping pong ball, or that, not a ping pong ball, but a ball that's in a little trolley that's running along a track and it pops out the ball and the ball goes up into the air and it falls back into the, tr- the yeah, right. because it has the same forward speed. All these kinds of experiments, there's a coal mine in the museum, uh, there's a model railroad. I mean, I learned the mechanics I, I knew the anatomy of a steam engine when I was four or five years old. I'm not kidding. <laughs> oh, that's great. Wow. Um, that's you know, how the pistons work and all that stuff. <laughs> so it, these things are fantastic intuition builders. And uh, it's a little bit unfortunate that modern children, uh, children today, they don't get to build radios the way we did when I was a child. I mean, I built radios. I built amplifiers. I built speakers. Uh, mm. I repaired my mother's sewing machine, uh, her <laughs> alarm clock, you know. Of course, mm-hmm. I, I had a feel uh, that was a little bit my bent. So I, uh, this is all very individual, but uh, right. learning, get this sense of intuition about things is important. Yeah, we talk about creativity a lot on this podcast and how important that is in the scientific process. And yes. you're right that intuition you're kind of building the vocabulary that you can use to articulate your creativity later on you know the the physics and the mathematics you're you're learning how to speak that language you're in your case you're becoming trilingual you're learning another language (laughs) that you can deploy (laughs) uh when you're as you're trying to express your uh understanding your your hypotheses your ideas about about the world yeah um yeah and so i've had one i've had as an engineer i've had an advantage over many of my colleagues in that I could uh, develop my own instruments. Right. So I, I could open a dimension. Uh, I mean, the Rafe was float in the sofa. That was, that was with Doug Webb, of course, and Henry Stommel was the, definitely the mastermind behind that, uh, or the inspiration. Uh, hmm. But the inverted echo sounder, we haven't talked about that, but I, I, I developed that. But uh, a colleague hmm. of mine has made a fantastic career out of that. The, uh, the Rafe was float, of course, uh, is, is an important development, uh, and I, another instrument that I developed for profiling currents was called the Pegasus, 
Uh, that didn't have a very long career, but uh, during the 1980s, we would go out to the Gulf Stream every couple of months and get profiles from the surface down towards the bottom at a number of sites going across the stream. So we have a very nice data set from about 18, 19, or 20 cruises with sections uh, uh, resolving in considerable detail the structure of the Gulf Stream uh, in the top two, 3,000 meters. Uh, that's been a very valuable data set, which we have used. We still use once in a while. Um, so, but that's something I developed. So that's something I could open up. So that, that has given me uh, the skill set to uh, start addressing questions that were not available or could be addressed before. Right, right. You mentioned this uh, inverted echo sounder. What uh, what did you do with that? Or what can you tell us a little bit more about the inverted echo sounder? Oh, yeah, that's kind of fun. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I had to hand it over to a postdoc of mine. I, I, uh, and he's done a vastly, vastly better job than I ever could have. Uh, Randy Watts, uh, he's here at the School of Oceanography. We came as a team here from Yale mm-hmm. University. But the concept is very, very simple. You have a pinger that sits on the ocean bottom and it sends a pulse up to the surface and listens to the round-trip travel time. Mm-hmm. It determines the round-trip travel time to the surface and back. Seems like a kind of a boring measurement, doesn't it? Well, the travel time is going to depend, of course, on the surface tide. But you know what that is, mm. so you take that out. So the only other thing, pretty much, that can affect the travel time is how much heat there is in the water column. <laughs> yeah, which is obviously very relevant. <laughs> this is very relevant. Yeah. And actually, on top of that, you know what the temperature profile pretty much looks like for any given lo- location. So you can get a, uh, this is what Randy did, you take that, you, you get all hydrographic stations in that vicinity and you create a synthetic or an average temperature profile and how that temperature, the variability of that temperature profile and how that impacts the travel time. Mm-hmm. So then when you have a travel time, you can give your best estimate of what the temperature profile looks like. And it works so well that if you put two echo sounders some distance apart and he gets the differences in the temperature profiles, you can get the geostrophic velocity in between mm. and compare that with measured geostrophic, uh, measured velocities, and it, it works extremely well. Right, yeah. So the, and the geostrophic velocity is that part that is driven by the kind of tilt of density surfaces that's enforced by the rotation of the planet. It's that kind of large-scale large scale circulation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's, he's deployed these instruments all over the world. I mean, the, <clears throat> in the beginning, he did it in the Gulf Stream as part of SINOP. Uh, later, he did it in the Sea of Japan. He's worked in the Kura Shield. Kathy mm-hmm. uh, Donahue and, and Randy have put these instruments across Drake Passage from the Antarctic to uh, South America and measured over a five-year period the transports in the, the Southern Ocean uh, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Right, right. Published on that. So, And these are sort of, they're almost like moorings, but you don't have to have the structures, I mean, you, you can get the, uh, because you have an idea of what the temperature profiles look like, you can take these measurements and convert them into your best estimates of what the temperature profile looks like yeah. and get uh, transports that way. Of course, they have kilometers on the bottom, so they have reference levels so forth. They also yeah. have pressure gauges on the bottom. Oh, that's very look, handy. Yeah, yeah, I know Chris, uh, Chris, uh, Chris Hughes at 
uh, National Oceanography Center at Liverpool has made uh, tremendous use out of the pressure, yeah. bottom pressure data that we have. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Now, yeah. yeah. yeah, Randy calls these sea pies nowadays. Sea pies, mm. IES is the inverted echo sounder, but uh, the P okay. in front is pressure pies, and then he adds a current meter, so that becomes a sea pies. There you go, yeah. This has been a very enjoyable discussion. Uh, of course, it's always fun to talk about your own work, I suppose. It's the first time <laughs> oh, yeah. I've done this. Uh, I've never done this mm. before. So. I mean, casually you do it with your friends or people you meet, yes, but yeah. a two-hour-long discussion like this I, is something else. <laughs> I did I did want to kind of ask one more big question in terms of uh, what, what do you want to do next? You know, you mentioned you're still learning, you're still reading, still active. Are there Are there things you want to see happen or what where, what's next for you uh two things and they uh i mean there there have been these two threads in much of what i've done one is working with these ships in regular traffic mm-hmm. uh and the other is working with these floats and uh, a major initiative that we are trying to start up uh, i'm helping out i'm not leading this uh is a program called science rocks r-o-c-s and that means research on commercial ships and it's an initiative that carries uh, Kerry Crean Strom in which Hole is uh, spearheading. She is head of operations, marine operations in Woods Hole. And uh, she knew about our Oleander work. She is married to a Norwegian captain, and she speaks Norwegian and she knows a bit of Swedish. But more importantly, she had seen the, the earlier work that. I'm very proud of a report that I wrote that came out in 2012. It was a SCORE working group um, that I spearheaded together with Koo Kim in uh, Korea and with Peter Ortner in Miami. And uh, this report's called Ocean Scope. I can send you a copy of it. I am quite proud of it. Unfortunately, it didn't go anywhere. Um, mm. Even though it was a SCORE IAPSO uh, sponsored document, uh, the idea was to systematize the work that we were doing on commercial ships to put them on other ships, and mm-hmm. especially the ADCP and XPTs, thermosilinographs, and uh, uh, hardy plankton recorders, uh, toad recorders. Some of that is done on ferries across Europe between Norway and Germany and Finland and Germany, but ADCPs uh, are not... Uh, routinely deployed on ships. I'm, hmm. I'm almost the only one who's done that together with Peter Ortner and, uh, okay. and our colleagues, of course. Uh, but also Terry Chureskin and Scripps has done a fantastic job with ADCPs on the Gould. I think it's the Gould that goes between Punta Arenas and South and the Antarctic. I believe it yeah. is. Yeah, I, I hear my, my colleagues at the British Antarctic Survey, I hear them talk about the Gould. I believe that is the one. Yeah. Yeah, and that has an ADCP at 38 kilohertz, which reaches quite deep. And she's mm-hmm. done some very, very nice work, too. But the number of people who work with uh, ships, ADCPs on ships in regular traffic, I mean, you can count them on one hand, more or less, mm-hmm. in the whole world. Right. Mm, I'm exaggerating okay. a little bit. I mean, but, but that's largely the case, that are publishing, mm-hmm. in other words. Right. So uh, what we're trying to do now is take that a step forward and put this technology more routinely on commercial ships. And uh, so Kerry is working with uh, Willem and uh, a Swedish-Norwegian shipping company, as well as with Stena Line in Sweden, to see if we can't get some instruments on their transatlantic or maybe elsewhere ships. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I'm I'm on the sidelines there, but I'm I'm certainly trying to encourage that kind of thinking. <clears throat> so that's one activity that we're going forward with. Uh, remains mm-hmm. to be, and the companies are extremely uh, sympathetic. Uh, uh, yeah. They won't put up money, but they will put up the platform, the ships, uh, and uh, we have to raise the money from the funding agencies. But right, that's right. where that's where we run into difficulties. The funding agencies have no problem putting ADCPs on all our research vessels, but they have a, our colleagues have a little bit of a problem. What is what is the value of putting them on ships in repeat operation? Uh, intellectually, we all agree that it is quite is a very power. This, that's not an issue. Intellectually, we all agree this is a very powerful tool, but in reality, is it worth the trouble. Hmm. And actually, it may not, even that may not be quite so accurate as the fact that it's hard to find people who are willing to put in an effort in that direction. Hmm. Uh, Charlie and I and Peter and a few others, Terry, Treskin, yes, we have done this. Oh, and I should mention Jules Hummond in Hawaii. She's been a very key person in all this. Hmm. Um, and her uh, colleague, uh, uh, Eric Fearing. They they have been key. Eric's been uh, spearheading the uh, developing the software for streamlining all of these things, and and he mm. was yeah. works with him. They they they're they're a key group in this country uh, mm. when it comes to ADCPs. So, and they're also helping out with this science rocks, trying transferring the technology into the commercial environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's going to happen, but it, like like a lot of things, it takes time. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And people have seen what we have published and what we have learned with these ships. Uh, so I want to, I'm not a hustler. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no good at trying to persuade others to do these sorts of things. <laughs> but, uh, but if I can show that we can do good science with it, uh, uh, hopefully, because uh, there's, there's a lot to be done. Mm. So that was one big push, yeah? And you said there were yeah. two things? What's the other one? Well, oh, the, the other one, one, the other one is working with Melissa Omand, uh, uh, my young colleague at, at GSO. She's developing this uh, next generation float technology. And um, oh, I haven't mentioned this. For some years, I've been working with a colleague in the electrical engineering department to develop what we call a fish chip, which is now semi-operational. The fish chip is a tiny little microcircuit that sits inside a little cylinder uh, about this size. And the cylinder is a hydrophone. And this whole thing has inside that has batteries, the chip, a crystal clock, and it can be submerged in water. And this is, and it's a Rapos flow receiver. It, it can hear the Rapos signals that are being transmitted and record the time of arrivals. The purpose is to put this on fish and track how fish are swimming in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, so you would catch so, a fish and p- put this uh, put it sensor. On. It has to be commercially yeah. important because you have to get it back from the fish. Mm. Um, you have to get, you have, we have put them on lobster. Um, we have gotten the tags back from the lobster, but we haven't done it yet on fish. Hmm. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Maybe one of the first initiatives will be to put them on salmon in the Labrador Sea because uh, the salmon <laughs> go out from the rivers and they come back. So you have a high chance of... And that's been done with other tags, so they know they can get the tags back. So if we put out, say, three sound sources across the Labrador Sea, we can track the salmon going out and then how they dive and swim and come back into shore. Yeah. 
Oh, so that's interesting. That, that technology is, we have the technology, but we haven't really implemented it to go to sea yet, but we're working on that now. And okay. Melissa is going to be testing this technology as a long range tracking device on gliders uh, this summer. Uh, so she's putting oh, nice. out some, in the, and she's putting out sound sources in the Sargasso, and she's going to put the tags on gliders and uh, see how well they work. Excellent. Well, that uh, sounds really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. A, I'm not doing anything, but I'm. I'm kind of a. Uh, I'm a cheerleader. Right. Right. Well, just kind of. Uh, I want to make sure we that I'm respectful of your time. So I guess we can kind of wrap things up. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about or touch on or mention while we're chatting? Oh. We covered a, a good bit. We covered a lot, which has been great. It's been really nice. It's been an excellent, excellent chat. I'm excited to bring oh, this to everyone. I should you say that. Um, no, I, 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 uh, I, if I could make a plea, it would be to young people to give oceanography more serious consideration. It's, uh, mm. And I admit that I would like to see more people who are somewhat in, in uh, that have somewhat of an engineering background. Mm, uh, yeah. We, we have a lot of very, very smart people come into the field, but especially in the physical oceanography area, uh, they, there's a very strong focus towards uh, modeling uh, and data analysis. Uh, oh, yes, we get a lot of data now from the satellites. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't have to do anything there, but sit at a computer terminal and, and do your thing with the satellite <laughs> data. Because everybody else has been doing all the scrubbing if I put it that way. I mean, to get it into some kind of engineering units. Uh, but we don't have, and even the funding the agencies, uh, no, we should, we need to build more pressure. I'm not sure how I'm going to phrase this, but uh, I would like to see more people come in that have uh, a hunger to go to sea and uh, study what's going on in the ocean. Uh, mm. We do have it on the chemistry side and we have it on the biology side. But in physics, uh, and we do have it there too, but I'd like to, so many of the students that I see around the country in physical oceanography are, are not as hands-on as I think we were before. Mm. Uh, and maybe that's just an old-fashioned part talking here, but... Uh, well, I guess one of the things that, that's maybe shifted over the decades is, you know, when you started, there really wasn't that much data. and it made a, a, a whole lot of sense and it still does make sense to get as much data as you can, but it made a whole, whole lot of sense to say, well, let's put lots of effort into building measurement platforms, you know, acquiring an observed understanding of the ocean. And now that that's blossomed so much, we, we do need loads of people to analyze that, but you're totally right that we also do need people you know, developing more ways to take these measurements, more ways to, you know, measure mixing locally, for example. Mixing is a is a good example, I think. Um, mixing, you know, I've got colleagues, yeah, yeah, yeah. who um, have gliders and they operate gliders in Southern Ocean with uh, vertical microstructure profilers on the front of them, so they can measure, you know, mixing in very specific yeah. locations. So that that's a place where uh, we yeah. still need people to to dig in and get physical with right. the measurements and things. Mm-hmm. A good example of that is uh, Jim Ladwell, who developed the skill to uh, look at diapycnal mixing, uh, you know, using sulfur hexafluoride yeah. back in the 90s. That was a very, very creative piece of work he did there. 
it involved a lot of technology. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and he's been in demand, you know, all around the world to look at vertical mixing in different locations, including in the Dimes experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Good. So, well, Tom, thanks very much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out and uh, chatting with us oh. and sharing your, your history with us. It's been it's been great. It's been really excellent. Yeah, it's been fascinating. Thank yeah. you. Sounds good. Okay. Oh, well, good. Thank good. you, Tom. Yep, thank you. Thanks yeah, so much. Thank you. Take care. There you have it, our conversation with Professor Tom Rossby. Thanks very much to Professor Rossby for taking the time out to talk with myself and with Ella And on that note, thanks to Ella Gilbert for, as always, being an excellent co-host. I'm really happy to be working with you. Thanks to Sean Williams-Page for editing services. And thanks to Lillian Blair for audio engineering consulting. Thanks to all of you for listening, downloading, subscribing. And uh, thanks to Chelsea Baker for support. I'd just like to go out with one more note of gratitude. I'd like to thank my friends that I've been talking to for challenging my thinking, for keeping me sharp, for keeping me engaged. Uh, I've really gotten a lot out of some interesting conversations about about culture and about the way that society is structured. You know, it's um, it's good to be engaged with that stuff. It's good to try to be conscious of it and mindful of it and not just go on autopilot. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a fancy cultural critic or anything, but it is just really good to be engaged in those kind of conversations where you're you're trying to be rational you're trying to look for new possibilities trying to use your imagination to see a new future i know all that's super ambiguous thanks for letting me ramble and uh, take care of yourselves talk to you next time bye bye